Well, as they make uh, their way, I would encourage you to make your way uh, to the book of First Thessalonians uh, in chapter 2. Uh, it's been a rough week at the Horn House. Uh, Karen flew to Florida first thing Tuesday morning. Uh, as Carl mentioned, her mother suffered a catastrophic stroke. Uh, she was life-flighted to the hospital. Um, and so Karen has spent the last week uh, with her mom in her last moments, as well as with her sister and her dad. And uh, this has been an opportunity for us uh, to be tested, see what we really believe, and what we really turn to uh, when the worst kind of days arise. Um, I'm happy to tell you this, not true that we have responded perfectly, but it is true that God has shown Himself faithful uh, in the teeth of very real, real, very real challenges and pain. And uh, for that, I am grateful because it really is true what Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is the victor over sin and over death and over hell for all who trust in Him. Amen? And... Uh, these things, though they are painful, they are not permanent. And Jesus is coming. And um, all of that brings me in a roundabout way to the Word of God given to us here in First Thessalonians. Uh, this whole book um, is written to a group of people who are going through the ringer. And it is written to tell them how to live until Jesus comes. How to live in the here and now in between our two very important points, right? We have, we have the moment that we put our trust in Jesus and we receive salvation by grace through faith. Amen? That's a great day. It's a tremendous moment, a life-altering, eternity-reshaping uh, transformation that takes place. And then we are looking forward to the great day when either Jesus comes for us, who are still alive on the earth at His return, or uh, we pass out of this life and into His presence and we show up face to face with Him. It's appropriate for my mother-in-law that she passed away on Sunday morning. She loved to go to worship. And now she's there. <laughs> and she was worshiping face to face. And we, we see through a glass darkly. But then we will see face to face. So we live in this in between, in the fact that we are saved, that we are going to uh, that we are going to go to see Jesus, but we don't see him yet. So how do we live in the in between? And this book is written for people who live in the in between, and we live in the in between. Amen. We are not yet home. We are not yet as we shall be. We are not yet. Uh, with the Lord, and we sometimes in the in-between go through the ringer. And so in these days between our salvation and our glorification when Jesus comes, this book is full of instruction for how to live in the meantime. So uh, this, this chapter, um, chapter 2, is a defense of the Apostles' ministry, but it also in that is telling us how to make disciples like they did. 
how to make disciples like Jesus did. Uh, and so it has a lot of practical instruction for us because one of the things that we are called to do in the in-between times between Jesus uh, saving us and Jesus taking us home is to make disciples just like Jesus did, just like Jesus commanded us to do. So if you have your Bible open, I would encourage you, if you're able, to stand and follow along as I read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-8. through 8. This is what the Word of God says. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning as we, as we worship our way through your word, that you would open our eyes to see not just the example that the apostles set, but very practically, how do we make disciples the way that they did, the way Jesus did, the way that you called us to? How do we... How do we put the gospel into a way uh, of life that, uh, that helps other people to see it? How do we put tennis shoes onto our faith and live it out in a compelling way that brings others to you and helps them to grow? And Father, we, uh, we pray for our time together that we might exalt you and bring you glory this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, Again, as you read the passage in context, uh, as you always should, by the way, read the passage in context. Don't just uh, find a verse that you like and uh, rip it out of that context and go with it. Uh, you won't, you'll misunderstand and misapply uh, what it has to say. But reading it in context, uh, what you'll notice right away is that the apostles are defending their ministry. And you might wonder why they feel the need to do so with a group of people that, after all, they are the ones who were led to Christ uh, by the apostles, right? So why are you having to defend your ministry to, uh, to these folks? And what you need to understand is this, that uh, when they came to Thessalonica, they preached the gospel, and there were a bunch of new Christians that resulted and they decided to follow Jesus. Well, what's wrong with that? Well, nothing. But in the eyes of all of their neighbors and friends and family members, there was a tremendous amount wrong with that because these people left their ancestral gods. Uh, in many cases, they adopted a religion very different from their families. Uh, they refused to worship the emperor anymore, and that made them, in the eyes of the people around them, bad citizens. And uh, 
And so they had all of these challenges. And there was a riot. And the apostles all had to leave. And after they left, then there was a concerted effort made to discredit the apostles' ministry and all kinds of accusations that were leveled, trying in an attempt to turn these new Christians away from their faith and back toward their old beliefs and to discourage anybody else from following Jesus. There's a lot of pressure brought to bear. And so they leveled all these accusations against the apostles in their absence. And they said things like, you know, their preaching to you was pointless. They're in it for the money. They're in it to glorify themselves. They just want to control people and be important. They're just a bunch of cowards. Did you see the way they left town in the night? That's what every con man does. And these guys are just a bunch of con men. You can just ignore them. They ran out of town. They don't even like you. You're just a means to an end for them. And so because of all these attacks, the apostles are making an effort to remind the Thessalonian church of the truth. That we have, and, and what we are given for us in our day as a result is a model for ministry and an outline for how to make disciples in a Jesus-like way that all of us, as we try to do what Jesus told us to do, commanded us to do in His absence, uh, how to make disciples in a Jesus-like way. And the first thing that you see in verses 1 and 2 in their model for how they did ministry is that they were bold despite suffering. Uh, the text here in verses 1 and 2 speaks of being shamefully treated in Philippi. What they mean is, I think, see if, see if this sounds like shameful treatment to you. They were arrested without a trial. Without so much as a, they were just accused. And then they were arrested. They were publicly stripped naked and beaten in public. And there was no trial before they were punished. It's like the, you know, the, the Queen of Hearts in Alice in Wonderland. Verdict first, sentence afterwards or a trial afterwards, right? Um, they, they got the verdict first, and then the trial was later, and they are like, oh wait, hold on, these guys are Roman citizens, we shouldn't have done that. But that was after they beat them, and after they imprisoned them. Then they were like, oh gosh, uh, we probably shouldn't have done that. We probably got the cart before the horse. But would you guys mind leaving town? Shameful treatment. And, and then they went from there, in Philippi, about 100 miles to the east, they went from there down to Thessalonica. And what did they do? They said, well, we're in a new spot. I guess we should preach the gospel. Now, let me ask you something. How many of you, um, if you were stood up let's say in the town square down in Peoria, down where they have all the food carts and the war memorial, right? Uh, if you were stripped naked and beaten within an inch of your life and thrown in prison in downtown Peoria, would say, you know, wander over to Champaign and say, let's see if we can repeat that experience. 
right? Uh, because that was great. I love that. Let's sign up for whatever we did before to get that to get that, a repeat of that one, right? But that's what the apostles did. And so they're saying, look, if we're cowards, how come we went and did within a week the same thing that got us beaten and imprisoned in a new spot? If we're cowards, why would we do that? We're not cowards. In fact, we had courage in our God to go and declare to you the Gospel. Because the honor and glory of God matters more to us than our comfort or even our own lives. These guys were not cowards. If you're a coward, you don't do that. Uh, and notice that it's God who supplies and supply, uh, not only supplied them, but supplies us the power for this kind of courage as we look to Him for it. And look at what they proclaimed. What kind of message is it that is worth suffering for? It's the Gospel. And it's worth suffering for in the midst of, as the text says, much conflict. The Gospel is a message that separates eternal life eternal death. The Gospel is a message that separates eternal life from eternal death. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father apart from Him. Amen? And so if you proclaim the Gospel, you are proclaiming the one solitary, single solution to the problem of sin and death and hell. And the apostles are saying, we are willing to suffer these things and we are willing to be courageous and bold for one reason and one reason only, that God supplies the power to endure suffering and to lay down our lives for the sake of the Gospel because the Gospel is the only hope of mankind. The Gospel is the only hope for eternal life. And we already have it. But we're willing to lay down our lives that others might have it too. And so if you're looking for a model for ministry, you're going to have to look to this as a key ingredient. You're going to have to be bold despite suffering. I don't know if you've noticed, but it has become markedly less popular to be a Christian of recent. Lots of people who were marginally attached to church prior to the pandemic are no longer attached to church at all. It's become a lot less popular to be a Christian. Uh, there are pressures being brought to bear culturally and even legally in some cases over certain parts of God's revelation of how to live life. And you're going to have to be bold. You're going to have to declare what the truth is of God's Word, come what may. If you're going to make disciples like Jesus did. I'm not saying that if, that if you preach the gospel to your friends and family and neighbors and co-workers that you're necessarily going to get stripped, uh, flogged and beaten and imprisoned. But you might at some point if you live long enough and things continue on the present trend. And 
And if they do, it will have been worth it. Because the gospel is a message that is worth suffering for. And Jesus is a Savior worth laying down your life for. Amen? And so part of our model for ministry needs to take suffering into account, not as a possibility, but as a, if this happens, I'm still going to do what God has called me to do. If I lose my job, so be it. If I lose my house, so be it. If I lose my freedom, so be it. If I lose my life, I'm going to go down preaching the Gospel. Amen? Bold despite suffering. In addition to that, uh, these guys served God, not greed or glory. And that's what we see in verses 3-6. through six. Uh, That's their motive is serving God. And what you'll see in these verses, if you look at them, verses 3-6, through six, is, all, is the echoes of all kinds of accusations that come the apostles' way. One is that they were heretics. That they were selling people an erroneous view of the Scriptures as a means for gaining a following. And by the way, are there people who do that? Yes. Okay? Every one of the... Uh, the ick-isms and spasms of uh, the kind of the wider religious world does exactly that. Uh, there's all kinds of cults that are out there that sell people an erroneous understanding of the Scriptures in the name of gathering a following for themselves. In fact, there are whole entities out there that call themselves churches that will tell you Essentially, their central question they want everyone to ask upon entering is the same question as Satan asked in Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say? There are people who preach error on purpose as a means for gaining a following. And that is one of the charges that is laid against the apostles here. You guys are preaching Jesus and we know He's not the Messiah. That's the, that's the charge, essentially. He says, we never preached error to you. Another is that, is that they were engaged in some kind of impurity. Now one of the things you need to know is that whenever you get false religion, one of the things that often accompanies that is not just erroneous teaching, but an immoral lifestyle. And so whether and, and what happens is, is, that, is that the people who get in charge of that organization start looking to the people within it as a means for sexual gratification. And so whether you're talking about Islam or whether you're talking about Hinduism or whether you're talking about Mormonism, you know, historically, the joke about Brigham Young who founded Mormonism was that he didn't care how he brought the girls as long as you bring them young. He was married to 50 different women, some as young as 13 years old. Whether you're talking about Jonestown, some of y'all are old enough to remember Jim Jones and Jonestown. Whatever you're talking about, even there are even churches and, and related organizations 
where the pastor, and I know some of these guys, I can give you names, where the pastor has gotten himself in a position primarily about taking advantage of the female members of his church. Whatever Bill Gothard was up to over in Indiana, that was a hot mess. And he, he remained single his entire life. And supposedly he was walking with Jesus this whole time and teaching everybody else how to organize their family. And in reality, he was abusing teenage women. The apostles said, we never did that. We didn't, we didn't come to you preaching Jesus as a means for sexual immorality. And they say, we didn't deceive anyone. You know, one of the things that you can always, you can always tell whenever somebody is selling you something is when they won't tell you all the details. Right? So when the Mormons come to your door and they knock, hi, this is Elder so-and-so and Elder so-and-so, would you like to know more about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Will they tell you, hey, we're here and we believe that you can become a god? No, they won't tell you that. Do they believe that? Yes, they believe that. Do they believe that you become a deity with your own planet to run? Yes, they believe that. Will they tell you that straight up when they come to the house? No. But do they believe that? Yeah. Do they believe that, that you, your job as a woman is to uh, be married to a good Mormon man and make all kinds of spirit babies for eternity? Do they, yeah, they believe that. Do, you, do they tell you that? No. Why? Because the deception won't work if they lay all their cards on the table face up. Apostles are saying, look, we never tried to deceive anybody. We will tell you exactly what we believe. We'll lay it all out for you. We'll tell you the truth. And if you then choose to reject Jesus, fine. But we're going to not trick anybody. There's no bait and switch with this. It wasn't a con. It wasn't, as verse 5 says, a way of winning people over with flattery as a pretext for making money from them. The apostles, in fact, never took a dime from anybody in any of the cities they were currently working in. You know, Later on, after they left, they would allow churches they had planted to send them support, but they would never take money from anybody they were currently serving. Because they, they said, we are not going to give our accusers any way of saying, well, you are just fleecing these people that you're ministering to. So they wouldn't do that. They worked manual labor jobs to support themselves. Uh, nor were they, uh, as verse 6 says, seeking glory for themselves. Now, I'm, I'm emotional this morning and I, I know it. Okay, And you're probably hearing some of that coming out as I'm talking. But as a pastor, as I was reading this passage, and considering the state of the American church, I am filled with a mixture of great anger and sadness. Because there's a whole lot of error 
being spread as truth with the idea that there will be no eternal judgment. There's no such thing as sexual immorality anymore. These things are favorite errors to sell to people. No such thing as judgment. No such thing as immorality. You can let your freak flag fly and nothing bad will happen. It seems like not a year goes by that we don't hear about some big time pastor or church leader who used his, his position to participate in immorality. And again, there's a long list of names. From Bill Hybels all the way down. Right? Many people speak flattering words designed not to rebuke sin and call people to repentance, but to con people into giving a lot of money to support an extravagant lifestyle. I know of one big-time pastor who bought a camp with church money and turned it into a place that he could high-fence and put deer in so that he and his buddies could go and hunt there. Now, I'm all for shooting deer. I like it. We're going to have a wild game feast in a few months and uh, hopefully bring a lot of people in here and share the gospel with them, right? But I'm not about to ask you to contribute millions of dollars to my hunting habit. All right? That is not what this is about. A lot of people build themselves a ministry designed and dedicated to enhancing their own glory. And can I just say, in case anybody is confused, that all of these things are contrary to the Gospel. There is one person that we exist and are gathered to serve and exalt and glorify, and it isn't anybody with an office in this building. It is King Jesus and Him alone. And we are deeply concerned about His glory, His honor, and the spread of His message. And all of these things are forms of abuse. They are spiritual abuse. Not a single one of these accusations was true about the apostles. In fact, what was their motive? You see it in verse 4. As men approved by God and entrusted with the Gospel, they spoke to please the Lord rather than people. They saw their role as being stewards of people who were entrusted by God with a great treasure to share and they saw themselves as accountable to God for doing it. And so their motive was to please the Master. Not to draw a crowd. Not to be seen as important by other sinners. Their love for God overflowed into love for people and the people to whom God had sent them. And so there was no way in their mind that they were going to abuse the people or the trust that God had laid on them. If you look at verse 7, you see the manner of their disciple making. Uh, it was gentle. Now I grew up in a church tradition where the pastor would yell at people. Any, any, you can raise your hand. Has this happened to you? <laughs> okay. Uh, but I, I grew up in a church tradition where you know, you'd go see some evangelist and they would just yell at you the whole time and talk to you about what an awful person you were. You know, like, I didn't have that great a self-esteem anyway. Right? 
And so I was never understood how this was supposed to be encouraging and helpful to me to get yelled at for an hour and a half at camp or whatever. You know, this was just it just never encouraged me. It didn't didn't help me develop in my spiritual life in any way. It was not that motivating. And if the goal of the Christian life is to in making disciples to tell people imitate me as I imitate Jesus, if that's our model, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. I never wanted to imitate any of those guys. Not one time did I ever think, well, if that's what look if that's what living like Jesus looks like, I want to be like that. Angry and hostile with everybody. That's awesome. Right? That is not the description that the apostles give of themselves. What do they say? We were gentle among you like a nursing mother with her infants. Now it's been a while since we had infants at our house. But I can tell you this. That there is nothing more precious than a little nursing baby. In fact, I remember when Sarah was born, she turns 22 next month, but I can remember the day she was born like it was yesterday and holding her for the first time and thinking, I'm going to break this child. You know, you hold him like she's made of glass, right? And um, and then when it was time a couple of days later to take, take her home, we were like, they're going to let us leave the hospital <laughs> with this kid. And then, and then it was like, no, no, we're going to make you leave the hospital with this kid, right? And we're like, we don't know what we're doing, right? But we were, we figured it out. And Karen was so gentle and tender with that little girl. And then we had another little girl, and same thing, right? You're like, oh my God. And, and as a man, I can tell you that like the warrior rises up on you. And there is nothing that you will not do. Nothing that you will not do to defend that child, right? But that mama with that little baby is so, so gentle. So gentle. The apostles say, look, this is how we were with you. you. We knew you were baby Christians. And so we were gentle with you. We weren't harsh. We didn't take advantage of you in any way. And Jesus-like disciple-making is gentle just like that. We need to remember that the people that we love and are sent to are people that Jesus loves. And there's a lot of story that we don't always know. They haven't told us everything that there is to know about their story and their life yet, usually. And so, whenever there's correction that's needed, and sometimes there is, be gentle. In your manner with people, be gentle. Come at it from a place of genuine affection for them. Like a nursing mama with her baby. Now later... Next week, we'll look at the other side of that where he talks about like a father. Here he talks about it like a mother. Um, lastly, share the gospel and your life. So these four elements, right? That we 
are bold despite suffering, that we serve God, not greed or glory. We're gentle. And then lastly, we share the gospel in our life. Maybe it's easier to see this by seeing the opposite. Okay. Uh, over the course of my life, I've met all kinds of people. I still know lots of people. I know some pastors in big time places. Large churches, guys with names that you would know whose books you probably own. And I know of at least one who has a separate entrance to his office from outside the building that is not accessible to any other church members. He has a secretary that sits in front of his office door and her purpose, her reason for being there, is not because he has such a long list of administrative tasks, although he does, her purpose is primarily to prevent people from coming in and seeing him. Because after all, the church is enormous, thousands of people, and he can't meet all of their needs. And, and I can't give everybody five minutes this week, and so just make sure that nobody comes in who doesn't have an, already, have an appointment that I've already agreed to. I know a lot of times churches believe bigger is better. And so we rejoice when our Bible study has 40 people or 400 or 4,000 and, and we weep when it has four. But I think the Lord doesn't work that way. In fact, I think small is big in His, in his eyes. Jesus had 12 disciples, remember? Not 1,200, not 12,000, 12. And he called those guys to make disciples like he did, which was little groups of people with whom they shared teaching and life and deep affection. And I think it's easy to get confused on this point because we like results that we can immediately see and immediately measure. But the reality is that those kinds of results don't usually last. Because disciples are made a few at a time and they can't be mass-produced in a crowd. And the job is not merely sharing the message. You see what my brother pastor got confused is he thinks his job is to share the message with people. And that's part of it. That's half of it. It's also to share life with people. It's to walk alongside them and to be deeply affectionate toward them and to do life together. And if you can't have both, then that is actually a problem to be solved. Amen? You ever wonder why God has seen fit to create so many churches across the fruited plain of like 50 people? You ever thought about that? And not very many great big massive enterprises? Because honestly, little ones are a lot more effective at making disciples than some big thing where you hear the message and you don't interact in life at all by design. Disciple-making process that doesn't love people well and show them how to live the truth as they are teaching it is doomed to fail because that is not what Jesus did. That is not what the apostles did. What they did was shared life together. 
You understand me? Shared life together. They walked alongside one another. They ate together. They prayed together. They walked together. They talked together. Jesus taught them and showed them how to live like He did. And the apostles did the very same thing. They didn't just gather them together, yell at them for a little bit uh, from God's Word, and then send them on their way. They did life. They did life together. And by the way, that is what we're called to do too. When you're making disciples, content is important, but it's not the only part. It matters. We are engaged not just in telling, but in showing, right? Just like kindergartners. We show and tell, right? As Christians, when you make disciples, you show and tell. This is what it means to pray. How do I pray? Well, let me show you. Pray with me. How do I read my Bible? Well, let me show you what I do. How do you share the Gospel? Well, this is how I do it. Maybe we can practice together. Well, when you know, I tried to share the Gospel with my my brother or my sister or my spouse uh, this week and it really just failed. What do I do now? Well, you know, I've tried to do that sometimes and it didn't work and this is what I've done. I'm having trouble getting along with my wife this week. What do I do? Well, tell me what you did. And let's see if we can figure it out. Maybe what you need to do is apologize. Right? Or maybe you need to pray for her. Or whatever, right? I don't like my husband this week. What do I do? Right? A good and godly woman shows another good and godly woman how to do that. Right? Not just tell, it's also show. So, brothers and sisters, our calling is to do what the apostles did and what Jesus did. It's to be bold despite suffering. Criticism, betrayal, rejection, and death are part of the gig. You know how I know? Because they happened to Jesus. They happened to the apostles. And so there should be no expectation they will not happen to us. We should not expect to go through life without suffering. We should not expect to, to have every, everyone approve of, applaud, and encourage us in our faith. We should expect criticism. We should expect to suffer. And we should expect to be bold in spite of it. Because that's what Jesus and the apostles did. So by God's power, let's be bold. I don't know about you, but I, I get tired of being a chicken sometimes. And not wanting to tell people about my faith because what if they what if they reject me? Well, what if they do? And you have suffered for the name of Jesus. And if they don't, you have won a brother or a sister. And what a tremendous blessing that will be. Either way, you'll be rewarded. So let's be bold. Proclaim the truth because I'm sure you've noticed there are millions of people in this country. The lost in this country are the third largest nation in the world. There are millions, hundreds of millions of people who are lost and going to hell all around us and they need us to be bold and proclaim the gospel to them. So let's, by, let's do that by God's power. 
Let's serve the Lord for the sake of honoring Him because we are entrusted with the gospel, which is all the honor and glory we need. That's all we need. I've been entrusted with the gospel, and that is all of the honor that a person needs. That's all the glory I have to have is that God has made me a steward and an ambassador for Him to represent the great King of all the universe. That's sufficient honor for anybody or it ought to be. And let's be gentle and kind with people. You know, I don't know about your life, but in mine, I can tell you that that's pretty rare that people are gentle and kind with me. Now, please understand, y'all accepted, all right? Because I can tell you this week, I've had an outpouring of gentleness and kindness and great love expressed toward me and toward Karen. And it means the world to us. But outside these walls, outside these walls, the world is hard and cold and harsh. And so gentleness and kindness toward people is a tremendous apologetic for the truth of the faith that we profess. And let's not only share the gospel, but let's share our lives as well. Let's walk alongside people and show them how the life of a Jesus follower is actually lived. We don't get a whole lot of... Uh, of people to follow Jesus because they just happen to hear the message and that's all that they get. But a lot of people come to faith in Jesus because somebody showed, shared the message with them and then they walked alongside them consistent with the gospel and they're like, you know, I don't know if this Jesus thing is real, but it must be because the life of the Christian who is sharing it with me. Because that person is a freak. And the only possible explanation is that Jesus is real in their life. Share the gospel in your life too. All these things are summed up in one beautiful word. Got four letters. You know which one it is. Love. This is what loving people with the gospel looks like. It looks like being willing to, to boldly proclaim the gospel in the teeth of criticism. It looks like being willing to serve the Lord in the way He has called you and not for your own glory, not in order as long as it benefits you. It looks like being gentle with people and it looks like sharing life with them along with the Word of God. Amen? This is what loving people looks like. So, if we do that, then we will succeed in making disciples like Jesus did, like the apostles did, and like Jesus told us to do, by the way, until He gets back for us. So let's do that. But let's also, let's also remember that we are not only loved by God, we are sent by God to do this very thing. And so let's pray and then let's, uh, let's sing our praises to the One who loved us best. Father, we thank You that You do love us.
that You love us with an everlasting love and underneath us, upholding us in every moment of every day are Your everlasting arms which never fail. And that You hold us in Your grip which never lets us go. And You are carrying us on Your shoulders that never grow weak all the way home. But as we go on that journey with You, Father, by Your Holy Spirit, You've given us a job. A job of of showing other beggars where to find the bread. And so, Father, I pray that we would be bold in that, that we would that we would seek Your glory in that, that we'd be gentle and that we would love well with the message and with life all the people that You put us around and all the ones that You put into our life for that very purpose that we might honor You. Father, help us to, to carry out the task because we love You and we love them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.